Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I am Laura Carfang, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Breast Cancer Conversations. I am so excited you are tuning in today because I am speaking with two dear friends. We have Olivia Bogger, who is the founder and executive director of Runway for Recovery. And I'm also joined with a dear friend, Meredith Mendelson, who is the executive director of the Ellie Fund. These two organizations are based in Boston. And if you're unfamiliar, Breast Cancer Conversations and SurviveringBreastCancer.org is headquartered in Massachusetts in Boston. So really, we thought, let's talk about the amazing breast cancer resources we have right here in our very own backyard. We talk about what it's like to have a mother and a loved one pass away from metastatic disease. We talk about how our organizations run, the amazing services that we provide, and how we are better with collaboration, not competition. Before we get started, here are a quick few shout outs. Just in case you don't follow us yet on social media, be sure to head over to Instagram. You can follow us at survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word. We are also on Twitter, SBC underscore ORG, and head over to survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events, where you can get the latest and greatest on all of our programs and services, including our signature Thursday Night Thrivers group, where we meet up every Thursday at 7 p.m. to support each other along this crazy roller coaster ride, so-called breast cancer. How do you do this every day? Your mom died from this. How do you, how do you do this every day? And I just said, I think because she died of this, it's what allows me to do this every day. I don't, I don't think I could really understand this work unless I had seen it myself. I get to go to work every day and make her the priority. And it's this huge loss. And I can't like, I can't rationalize why I could lose this woman and have, you know, 20 years of my life, not have a mother and all these major events. And this is like all she wants to do in life is have kids unless I go to work every day for her. We all run, you know, small organizations that are mighty, but boy, are things stronger when you band together. It's like, it's almost like a hug. It's almost like a shield. Well, it's almost like when it's raining and you have an umbrella and they're, and they're protecting you. And so we were like, we're like a pink umbrella. <laughs> and that just, that's just what we are. All We all do different things. And, you know, people get some shelter from us when things are, are really bad in a storm and breast cancer is like that. Welcome to the conversation. It's so lovely to be connecting with you. I feel like this conversation is so long overdue and to bring you on to Breast Cancer Conversations, which is a podcast where we just talk about all things breast cancer, personal stories, bringing on medical experts, talking to amazing two executive directors who we have here today to discuss all of the amazing resources available to the breast cancer community. So it's a pleasure to have both of you here. Meredith, why don't we start with you? You are based in Needham, Massachusetts. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and the organization that you work with? Sure. I'm, uh, re- I represent the Ellie Fund, and we are a Needham-based um, organization, but we serve all over the Commonwealth. And also, if anybody is being treated in the Commonwealth but lives elsewhere, they can also um get our services. There's no way to qualify. You just, if you have breast cancer and you're being treated here, we can help you. And so it's it's a really, I'm really looking forward to speaking with both of you and and hopefully some people will see our services and, and say that they need some support. Exactly. Thank you. 
And Olivia, you're also based in Massachusetts, correct? Yes. And this is why Meredith and I are such a good tag team because her, her plug is always such a, it fits so in line with runway, but um, so I love going after it. So I'm runway for uh, Olivia Boger from runway for recovery. And we also um, serve Massachusetts and any new England family um, and much like the LA fund. And it's like such a great um, compliment to the LA fund. We exist in a breast cancer space um, that's for the families and the, the kids whose moms have passed away from breast cancer. And we don't have anything that we require of you except for the fact that that's um, happened to you and that you had a loved one who was your main caregiver and that person passed away from breast cancer. Um, and we're happily here to serve the families, the husbands, um, the partners, the grandchildren. Um, and we have been around since 2007. Amazing. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing. And I'm so excited to have the two of you on the show, exactly as you were mentioning, Olivia, for kind of the the ebb and flow of the work that Meredith and Ellie Fund is doing and how that can segue potentially into work that you're doing at Runway. And I think one of the things that we really want to highlight on Breast Cancer Conversations is the breadth and scope of resources available to individuals and families. I think so often families don't get the support that they need. We always think about the patient, the person who's going through the treatment themselves, which is true. And by all means, they need support. But I talk a lot about um, like we have breast cancer. It's the we, it's the families, it's the children, it's the neighbors, because we're all experiencing someone's diagnosis to various levels of degrees. Yeah. And, you know, with the Ellie Fund and Olivia with Runway also, we do a lot of nutrition support in the form of gift cards to a local grocery store where someone likes to shop or meal delivery, what have you. And we feed the entire family. We're not just providing groceries for the patient um, because we know, you know, we do serve men with breast cancer, but the majority of the people that we serve are women. And if you are a caregiver uh, and not just a mom, if you're caring for your um, parents that are, have now moved in with you after COVID, we're seeing a lot of that. Um, it's a household and it's a family that needs to be taken care of. So we provide for the whole family and not just the patient, which relieves a lot of stress for the caregiver who's used to making sure everyone has what they need. And now she's the patient Yes, and that's a completely different role. So we try and take care of everyone so that she can really focus on her treatment. Meredith, that's so important to provide for the whole family, not just the patient. I love that. Can you tell us a little bit more about the services and resources that the Ellie Fund provides? Sure. So we uh, provide free of charge with no proof of financial need or proof of residency. Um, we can serve literally anybody. Um, we can serve our patients get to pick two services. It's very customizable to whatever they need at that particular time. Um, the majority of our patients do get grocery gift cards or meal delivery because we we think food is love at the Ellie Fund. And so we're always you know, feeding people, feeding the kids, feeding the aunt, feeding whoever is there, taking care of the patient. We also provide for transportation to treatment, which is really important, um, especially during COVID, where for a lot of our patients that take public transportation, it was so inappropriate and, and really unsafe for them to be on public transportation during COVID and actually any time, really. And so we can put people in Uber or Lyft. Um, if they happen to have a local taxi company they like, we'll pay for that. 
Um, one of the most unique benefits that we offer is uh, reimbursement for up to 50% of someone's childcare. So if there are, no matter how many kids are living in the house and there's childcare involved or during the pandemic, we actually provided tutors so that they could manage remote learning while mom was in treatment. Um, so childcare is a big one. We also do housekeeping because we really think that in terms of relieving stress, having a clean house that you don't have to worry about is really helpful. Um, and for our metastatic patients, we do offer integrative therapy. So acupuncture, oncology, massage. Um, so it's, it's really customizable. And if you have a curative breast cancer, we can serve you for three months. And if you have a metastatic diagnosis, we can serve you for six. Ellie Fund is 25 years old and I've only been with the Ellie Fund for three years. So this mm -hmm. is something that they've done forever. And it really, it even really started out being more like books and education for the children, mm -hmm. um, much in the same way that Olivia's focus is. Um, because the two boys, Ellie Popkin, the Ellie Fund had two boys. And she, when she died, they were in college. It was a really tough time for them. She had metastatic disease and she, she happened to live for a really long time. But in that really long time, a lot of the resources dried up. Yeah. Um, you can't sustain a family going through a disease like that for six, seven, eight, 10 years. And so they felt really isolated. And to, in order to honor their mom, they decided to, you know, sort of wrap services or, or gestures around families so that they didn't feel alone. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm always curious, too, when we're talking to members in the community, families who are dealing with a loved one who's been diagnosed or a patient, you know, we try and put together that list, right? Like what would have the biggest impact? What would it really help the family? What would alleviate some of the stress? And so really, I, it's not a one size fit all. So it's really wonderful that you're being able to provide kind of this custom uh, curated approach to what the families need and what the, the mom or the dad may need to. It depends when in their disease they come to us. Things might feel differently right after surgery. Mm -hmm. um, they may think that they need X, Y, Z, and then they get through surgery and they start, you know, radiation or chemo or whatever it is, and, and things look a little bit different. So we try and be as flexible as we can. And we get a lot of feedback from our patients. So we know it's helpful. It's, I don't yeah. think it's any like unique formula that we came up with, but we do listen to our patients and we, we have been able to adapt like we did with the childcare in the pandemic, you know, child cares were closed. Right. And they were like, how am I going to take care of my kid? Now I'm now they're home doing remote learning and I have chemotherapy. I mean, it's just, so we adapted. Yeah. I think that's, that's wonderful about our, all three of our organizations, right? Is that, you know, where I tell people, I'm like, we're the red tape. You want to do something, talk to us and we can make things happen. So, so true. Absolutely. Being able to pivot. So Olivia, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what Runway does. You guys definitely serve a unique niche in the breast cancer space as well. We do. And it's so interesting because listening to Meredith talk about the services, I think that they're all such human services. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the same way that um, those are needed when a mom is going through treatment, I think in many ways, the same things are this are true for when a family is left without that mom. Mm -hmm. um, we are funding the same things, but again, it's a very customized approach because I think Meredith and I have both found in our work that, and what you have found too, Laura, is that just, it, it's not a one size fits all. Mm -hmm. So one dad is telling us that his family, um, you know, needs childcare and gymnastics. And then another dad is telling us his kids are in college and need textbooks and gas cards so they can come home. 
Right. Um, and the flexibility of having that control over how we um, award grants is something I'm so grateful for. It stems from um, the intake that our social workers do with the families that apply. So we have families apply and they are granted for 12 months and it's it's pretty large grants. So it's between 10 and $30,000 a family. Um, 10 is usually for a family that has one child and 30,000 is for families with more like two or three kids per family. We've had a lot of single moms pass away in the pandemic. We're giving gift cards to grandparents that have adopted kids or new parents that have adopted children for the first time. Um, and or an aunt that has adopted a child from a different place in the country. Um, so that's also really interesting because we're looking at um, who else is in that family and what it does take to add an extra mouth, um, you know, around the, the table and what that looks like for a full year. It's the thing humans need just basically to wake up and survive. And then yes. our hope at Runway is that we're funding the thing that makes the kids smile. Um, or brings the kid um, a connection to their community that a mother would have bent over backwards to figure out how to give. Do you have an example of the types of families that you do serve? Um, mm-hmm. I always think about this this brother sister pair that applied, and um, they had their you know dad wasn't in the picture, the mom had died, and grandmother had adopted them, and this girl was so hesitant to tell me that she needed back to school clothes for college. Um, and then when, the more I got to know about the mom, she had worked two jobs and had always made sure that this kid could do a really expensive after school program. And so finally I was like, I'm giving you a gift card and you're going to, you know, Gap and Old Navy and Marshall's and you're just, and she was like, no, I like, um, consignment, I like consignment clothes. So I was like, all right, I got to figure out what that gift card is. But it's just like, to me, that is just so, you know, of course the mom took a second job so she could mm-hmm. make sure her kid looked cool at school. Yeah, um, exactly. And, uh, so it's the basic necessities. And then we always push a little bit further and try and figure out what mom would have done or the, the caregiver would have done. So, yeah. um, it's incredibly, you know, it's incredibly difficult. It's not, we're not operating in a space that always has somebody doing well and having the cure. Um, but the same way that Ellie, you know, had this, her kids had this desire to honor the legacy that she left behind. Um, it very much felt like there was a space for us because there, it, for some people you get encircled by people and mm-hmm. they take care of you for decades after a parents died. And for some it's a week of, you know, meal train and then, everyone's meant to move on. So we're trying to operate in that space where we can keep showing up. Meredith and Olivia, you know, I think all three of us come to our nonprofits day in and day out because it is honestly and truly something that comes from our heart that we wake up and we want to serve. Can we talk a little bit about how you found yourself in this space and what keeps you going? Well, Olivia and I connecting on such a personal level is even though I lost my mother as a, as a young adult and Olivia was much, much younger, um, that, you know, when I first went into this work, I was really concerned about separating, you know, something that I had faced that was so painful every single day. Like, could I really handle it? And I was talking to a patient the other day who's really young and she has metastatic disease. And she said, you know, how do you do this every day? Like I heard, she had heard me on a podcast and she said, your mom died from this. How do you, how do you do this every day? And I just said, I don't, 
I think because she died of this, it's what allows me to do this every day. I don't, I don't think I could really understand this work unless I had seen it myself. Um, and that's not to say that you can't work in a space where you weren't personally affected. Cause I think, I think you can, but I think going through that personal experience allows you to take it on, even though it's kind of painful, it just allows you to take it on. Whereas otherwise you might say, you know what, I don't really want to face that every day, but when you're honoring your mother, you tend to figure it out. You could attribute her and Laura. I mean, I think I talk about this all the time because the other part of runway that's I'm not talking about enough is how we are looking for ways to find joy and celebration and how this all started for runway was just fashion show and the incredible models that take our stage and dance in honor of their experience with breast cancer. But I always think about why some models choose to do it. And some people choose to sit in my audience year after year. And I think everyone's different, but you're honoring your experience with breast cancer and starting the organization that you have. And by continuing to have the conversations you've had with people. And that's how I feel like every day. And like, this is, you guys think that this is a job. I mean, this is my way of, of surviving because I get to go to work every day and make her the priority. And it's this huge loss. And I can't like, I can't rationalize why I could lose this woman and have, you know, 20 years of my life, not have a mother and all these major events. And this is like, all she wanted to do in life is have kids. Um, unless I go to work every day for her. (laughs) So, I mean, so I, but I think that if you've had breast cancer, you're like, I have to start something because that was such a wild and horrific experience. I need to do something with that or else what was the point of that? You know, I'm sure we hear all the time, like, I don't know how you do what you do or like, you know, we're working around the clock doing all these crazy things. And it's like, to your point, it's not work. We're called to do this because it's something much larger than just myself. I remember when I first started my organization, I was so excited to get my own email address, laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. What I wasn't prepared for was the bombardment of emails that we all get. Olivia, Meredith, we're all in the space where our jobs are to receive emails every single day of inquiries from people saying, I just got diagnosed with breast cancer. I need help. I don't know what to do. I need support. What resources are available to me? I just got diagnosed or my mother just got diagnosed with metastatic disease. I just lost somebody to metastatic disease. What do I do day after day after day? It's an honor because the number of stories you hear, you get so much better at it. So I actually feel like when I absorb a story and I absorb it well, and I give them the right um, reactions back and I say the right things, like that's an honor because that means it's 15 other people have had to tell me that exact same horrible story. And I, I get choked up and I emote, but I know how to get to the other side so that I'm helpful. And the second you're helpful to somebody in this horrible place, that's, I mean, to me, that's everything. And that's purpose. The, yeah, that's the purpose. And, you know, somebody was like that way with me in the hospital in those last days with my mom because she had lost her mother the year before. And um, I think the inspirations like that with other women or other people that have had the same experience really lift you and make you want to be good at doing that. I love how we can honor our mothers and our own personal experiences with the work that we are doing. You're absolutely right. Olivia, can you tell me a little bit about your personal experience? How old were you when you found out that your mother was diagnosed? So I was 20 years old um, and uh, I was just writing about this the other day. Um, 
it was a very, the, the death was very tied into 9-11, which has taken me 20 years to really pull apart, but it's always been there because we watched 9-11 happen together. I was on a phone and she was on a phone and I was in college and she was at home. Um, but that really start started the clock to the end of her life. Um, she died on October 4th of 2001. And, um, you know, grief has that incredible way of teaching you something new every time you experience one of the feelings. And me this year on her 20th anniversary, I was reminded of, uh, uh, so I for sure got strength from her and I'll talk about her in a second, but I also got this weird strength from the country because I watched so many families grieve on TV in a way that I didn't really understand why that experience impacted my own grief, but, but it was true. Um, and she and I would call each other from college and watch those funerals of, you know, firefighters and dads and the women who were pregnant. And, um, it was kind of like a final gift that was given to our family, which was just to see like how you could kind of get lost in your grief or you could celebrate it. And she just happened to die on, you know, 20 something odd days after September 11th. And we very much, um, took that very hard, very surprising, very unpredictable, uh, loss in our lives and very quickly decided to celebrate it. Um, she had breast cancer for 10 years. She chose not to tell anybody. Um, she was, I think many people would argue a product of her time being diagnosed in 1991 and dying in 2001. But I also think she was just Candy Ochtmeyer and that was just not her game. That was not her play. <laughs> she was not, she would not have been on my runway. I say that often. She would not have been a model on the runway. No um, pink ribbons. No we no how. No. Um, and, but that, you know, her thing was being a mom. Her thing was raising the four of us. She just loved creating all the magic that comes with four little kids. And she also was given a diagnosis in 91 when we were quite young. And I think she looked medicine in the eye and she was like, there's no way I'm dying when my kids are eight um, and, you know, 10 and 12. So I have another story coming. And so she really relished in keeping the secret and living and her hair growing back after that initial chemotherapy and then being in kind of elective medication or trial medication so that her hair wasn't lost again and really being there for us as kids. And while there's no question in my mind that she would not have wanted to die when I was 20, I think that the difference between 10 and 20 is very profound. And I, you know, she'd gotten me to my a college I loved and she'd seen her eldest, my brother graduate. I think that was a major milestone for your first kid to graduate from college and be on his way to his first career. So she was a very private um, person when it came to her breast cancer. We forged a very close relationship really in the, those final four days of her life, which was in a coma with her doctor and, and therein, mm -hmm. uh, you know, unveiled the 10 years that he had been supporting her and treating her. And he was really able to kind of give us a mirror into her life. And it, it took me about five years after that, um, after her death to get back in touch with her. I was 25. I had just gotten a master's and I was um, kind of determined to on her fifth anniversary, figure out a way to honor her once and call it a day. And something about that first show was so magical. Um, it wasn't about candy. It was about the, the 10 women on the, on the runway Two of them happened, three of them happened to be walking in her honor. So I was able to put up all those pictures of her in a moat and feel like I got my moment where we celebrated her. And then it was very clear that just that very act of doing that in her honor had some legs and people were really inspired by it. So it went from 
year one to, to 12 years of that annual event that really started to take over my life to the last three years doing it full time. When you say that she was, you know, a private person and not sharing much about her diagnosis, that included not sharing with her children? No. So we did not know. I was at George Washington University. And so we were right next to the White House and there was some big riot happening. The World Bank was having meetings. There was a big protest. Shouldn't have said riot, a protest. And so they kicked us all out. So by chance, I went home on Mm. October 1st and we watched Friday night movie together. And she hauled Gatorade to my sister's field hockey and soccer games because it was her turn. They were seniors in high school. And I hugged her goodbye on the sidelines of a field in New Hampshire and said, I'm going to go visit my grandmother, her mother up in Hanover, New Hampshire. She lived at the Dartmouth College. I haven't seen Neiman in a long time. I'm going to go hug her. And my mom was like, yeah, you got to go see your grandmother. You got to go check in. She went to a coma that night and that was a Saturday and she died on Thursday. So her, her five days in the hospital were like, she was in a coma and like every friend, like mom, friend, family member, cousin, mother, my dad's best friends, um, our best friends came to say goodbye to her yeah. right in front of our eyes. And that, I, I, again, I credit so much of like how I then dealt with this more like car accident loss than breast cancer loss, just because sure. I watched everybody have the same reaction, which was like, Candy, why did you do this? Like, why did you tell us we could have helped you? And it, you, at first you started angry and you started, you know, yeah, like we could have helped. And then you just, you know, have to, at some point, accept that none of us could have changed her breast, the course of her breast cancer. And what we gained from 10 years was, you know, 10 years of birthday parties and yeah. staying out late and not worrying about going to prom and, um, and what she wanted for you, what she, it was totally. her choice. She won. Yeah. She was lying there totally winning. She was like, I got you all, you all yeah. are all suckers. And why are you here on a Tuesday <laughs> at 9am? Like, let me die. Um, no, she, and she herself, you know, my dad is an interesting, incredible human that no, we, I don't give enough credit to. He's the chairman of my board. So he, he gets credit in his own quiet way, but she really looked at him and was like, Bill, you have to keep this because this is the only way I'm going to survive. So she actually stopped understanding her diagnosis. She would go in for her appointment. She would get checked. She would go wait in the waiting room. And my dad would sit there and get all the news. So when she went to the hospital that night that I said goodbye to her, she brought bills to pay. Like went in with her pocketbook and wow. bills. Yeah. Just not thinking this was the end of her life. Um, little things we found later made us think that like either she's the most amazing planner on the planet or (laughs) something was telling her that she was dying. Um, I think a a minister had come to our house at some point in those last two weeks and she asked him to leave. (laughs) Like I think a minister had come to try and like talk her into like, you're getting towards the end. And she was like, John, Reverend Lombard, you may leave now. Uh, So, and she's, she was an incredibly lovely, like classic woman who just, wanted the focus to be, if you saw Candy, you would say, how are the kids? How's your volunteer work with their schools? How's Handel and Hyde Society going? How's, you know, Symphony? How did you and Bill like Tangle? Like, those were the questions one was supposed to ask her. It was not, how are you feeling? And so she avoided all those questions by never telling anyone. So her mother really didn't know. When her mother came to the hospital, her mother was like, Candy, you know, right over the riot. Oh, man. That's the history. I can't change it. 
Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. I, I doubt other people have the same one, which is why I share it no, often. But then just to, you know, what a beautiful way and what I love about, you know, recording and talking to women, you know, some people, I feel, I feel like, right, like they shy away, like, oh, someone's sick. Like I'll, I'll check it in a couple months once like the dust has settled. And, you know, I'm sure maybe you've learned this as well through the work that we're, we're all involved in is let's talk about our loved ones and the people that have passed because we want to recognize them. We want to keep their memories alive. We want to celebrate their life and their personalities and the joy that they bring to us. You have to. We, the, yeah. the night she died, it was very early in the morning. It was like right after the sun rose. And when someone dies, they die and they're in a hospital and you're not. And we drove home and by eight o'clock at night, it was primetime television time. The house had been full since noon, mm-hmm. like just full. And Friends was on. And it was the episode where Ross found out or Rachel found out whose red sweater it was. I'll never forget it. <laughs> I mean, Friends is a, is a comedy. And we all crammed into the TV room, yeah. like, thir- like 30 of us, people who should never have been watching Friends. And we had to watch it. We had a big bottle of champagne and we had to watch it. And I think what her story has always taught me, because people want me to say that's not how you should do it. I mean, they really do. And and I have a guilt when I sit across from a mother who's like, I've told my daughter since the very first time I was diagnosed. And my point to them is don't don't make anyone's story yours. Do yes. what you need to do. And that is what she needed to do to survive. And that's what I've learned to live with and embrace and love is that. It is so her story and it makes it who she was. And I get no part in judging how it went down. Um, nor do I, if somebody sits their daughter down an hour after they get their diagnosis, like yeah. that's how you do it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Meredith, can we come to you? You know, I think hearing Olivia's story, it really makes me think about the language in which we talk about a diagnosis, whether it is early stage, newly diagnosed with breast cancer, living with metastatic disease. How have you embraced language? How do you talk about breast cancer when you get those emails or those phone calls? That's actually at the Ellie Fund. um, And I don't know about runway, but we never say battle or fight. It's not part of our vernacular because that gives the impression that somebody lost or didn't fight hard enough. Yes. This is why I don't talk about it. (laughs) So we never say that. Um, You know, the science is a science and Mm -hmm. positive attitudes are wonderful, but nobody, nobody didn't try hard enough. Completely. Completely. I think language is such an important Part of the education, especially, you know, in October with Breast Cancer Awareness Month, you know, I always say to each their own, like if they love the term survivor and the pink ribbons and all of the things that get them excited for whatever it is that they're going through, all for them. For other people, they're like, I don't feel like a survivor because I'm on treatment for the rest of my life, right? Like I still am waiting for the cure. And so I completely agree that um, I was, I was doing um, a virtual conversation with some women and they were like, you know, vision boarding and fighter and, you know, warrior and all these, the language that you're just describing. And I was like, but, and for them that worked. Right. And for others, I think sometimes when we say that we're fighting, it's, you know, coming to terms with the fact that our body is failing us and something internal is wrecking havoc with us. I also think about the language that in the breast cancer community, and this is, of course, I'm saying this as a not as a patient, right? It's not really my 
experience. So I have to be careful. You know, I, I don't want to say something to upset someone when I personally haven't gone through it, but you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of loaded language. Like, are, are you a survivor? Are you a thriver? Are you, you know, it's almost, it's almost hard to say the right thing. And I would just say, everybody should just give themselves a little bit of room to make mistakes because the worst thing would be is not to say anything at all than to worry about, you know, I mean, nobody wants to offend anybody. We all do this, you know, this is our calling, but, you know, language, language can really hurt and you don't want to make, you don't want to make a mistake. So I always say like, everyone should just give a mulligan. Like you get, you get a mistake, you get a free one, Yeah. you know, and certainly I've made mistakes. I, I actually, we have a, um, a series called Ellie connects where we interview much like this, different experts or topics. And one of my friends, Joanna Chanis, who, um, she, her phrase is she has healed from breast cancer. That's how she describes it, which, which I love. And I interviewed her because when she first told me that she, I found out after the fact, after her mastectomy and everything. And, um, it was like, the first thing I said to her was, Oh my God, like, why didn't you tell me? And it was instantly about me. And I, and she goes, really? She's like, are you really saying that? She's like, it, you know, really, is that really important? I didn't tell you you're I'm here now. Yeah. And, you know, in that conversation, I really let, like, I just said to her, you know, what do you not say to someone with breast cancer? What do you not say? And I can, for anyone who's listening that wants to know what they should not say, they should not say, why didn't you tell me? And they should also not say, um, how did you know? Because how did you know is really saying, I'm worried about me. What what do I need to know? Am I going to be in your situation? Um, and I learned that from our patients. Those two things are really unhelpful. Uh, those are great examples. Someone also told me um, another, another line, and this goes back to also what Olivia was mentioning too, about how we don't want people to ask necessarily, how are you? Um, we had a great discourse on why is the how are you so weighted? Are you asking about my family? Are you asking about my kids? Are you asking about my vacation? Or do you really just want a health update? And if that's the case, just let me know and ask the question. Oh, that's interesting. So say what's happening with your treatment. Yeah. So it would rather be specific, right? Because some people might just say, how are you? And they might just be your nosy friend who just wants to know like the latest on your treatment. Or maybe they're just genuinely wanting to take your mind off of breast cancer and ask how your vacation was. But the general, how are you, is is weighted. And so the the response that I got, which I think is super helpful, was when you see somebody, it's nice to see you. You don't even need to ask, how are you? It's, it's just nice to see you again, right? And that keeps it open-ended and there's no pressure for that person to f- navigate like, well, really, what are you asking? And it's a double-edged sword too. And I will say, you know, if people don't ask me how I'm doing, I'm like, oh, do you not care about me? I had breast cancer. So you're never going to win. <laughs> so we talked about each of our organizations and I want to circle back to this idea of the pink umbrella, the conversation that all three of us have started around really being able to be a feeder to other people's resources, not reinventing the wheel. Meredith, can you talk to us a little bit about our I feel like we need a drum roll, please. A little bit about our pink umbrella. There appears to be a lot of um, duplicity in the breast cancer world. These folks work on awareness. These are the screaming people. 
they'll get you housing, they'll do, they'll do gift cards. But if you really, if you really get down to what each, each group does, there isn't a group that I would say doing the same work that someone else is doing. It's all pretty niche. Like Olivia and I, I mean, our relationship is, is personal, of course, but it's also very strong for Olivia to, to find a patient who needs help and to say, the Ellie Fund's got you. And I know I'm going to call them and they're going to call you and you're going to have what you need in 24 hours. On the other side, you know, for me, we've lost, I mean, a third of my patients are metastatic. For me to say to, you know, a surviving father or a surviving grandparent to say, I need to introduce you to my friend, Olivia, they take, they, they take care of the children that survived this and I want you to meet them. And so it's this constant back and forth. To have those personal relationships too, like you're being taken care of. Let me do a personal introduction. You're not just being thrown into a system, which I think is so important. You're being taken care of. So that brings all three of us together to really just continue to take and now this. The pink umbrella. Yes, the pink Let's umbrella. Talk about the pink, Laura. The pink umbrella. We don't do support groups at the LA Fund, and I will say to someone, you know, I wouldn't send you to anyone, but I think this is a safe space, and I'll send them to to Laura. And now that you're focusing on doing a metastatic support group. Um, you know, our metastatic patients really, they really don't want to be, well, not all of them, but the ones that have vocalized this have said they really don't, they really only want to speak with metastatic patients because it's such a different disease. And, um, you know, we saw that and thank goodness for one of our former board members, um, Heather Shanahan, who, who said, this is a different disease. You guys need to treat this differently. And so really got us to think about what types of services, what what should the length of the grant be? Just to circle back with the pink umbrella. So obviously we're all obsessed with this term, but it's because we started having these calls, you know, every few months to just sort of figure out the breast cancer landscape and figure out where we could be helpful and how we could pull resources. And because we both, we all run, you know, small organizations that are mighty, but boy, are things stronger when you band together. And so we were, you know, just kind of thinking of like, you know, it's like, it's almost like a hug. It's almost like a shield. Well, it's almost like when it's raining and you have an umbrella and they're they're protecting you. And so we were like, we're like a pink umbrella. (laughs) And that just, that's just what we are. All, we all do different things and, you know, people get some shelter from us when things are, are really bad in a storm and breast cancer is like that. I think it makes so much sense for other nonprofits who have nothing to do with breast cancer to listen to what we're saying. Um, And then for other people in Boston to pay attention, because I think we're nonprofits feel like they're banging their head against the walls when they have a donor call and you're explaining what you do. And the donor's like, Oh, that's exactly exactly what so-and-so does. And you want to be able to say totally, but (laughs) here's how we're different. And and you as a donor have the choice to really like be um, really targeted with what you feel like makes an impact for what, where you believe the money should be going. And that can be totally personal and it won't, it won't um, be offensive to me at all. If somebody's like, you know, I am a, I am currently in treatment with money to give and the Ellie fund resonates so much with me. 
great. We share donors. Absolutely. I have just gone through breast cancer and you know, what was so important to me was support groups. Amazing. Like that type of, I think where nonprofits get, and I don't think any of us have a bad name, but I think where nonprofits in general get a bad name is when you feel like we're all trying to fight each other with the best gala or the best sweatshirt, because we're all trying to make the money to do the most amount of whatever. Right. And what's unique about us is we all got together and we're like, no, we do different things. Different. So and, and we can introduce you to them. <laughs> and we're willing to work with each other, um, which it would just be so great if everyone did that. Olivia and Meredith, thank you so much for being on today's podcast. I really enjoyed today's conversation because it really shows under this pink umbrella how we can all come together, share resources, services, and really support each other. This is really, you know, hashtag women supporting women to the highest degree. So thank you again for being on today's podcast, sharing your personal stories and diving into some of the nitty gritty. I will be sure to link to all of your social media handles and websites, but for all of our listeners, be sure to check out Runway for recovery and the Ellie fun. Thank you both again for being on today's episode. And thank you all for listening and tuning in week after week here on Breast Cancer Conversations. Please be mindful that all of our content and information is for educational purposes only and is never a substitute for medical advice. If you want to hang out again, please check out survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events where you can RSVP to our Thursday Night Thrivers weekly meetup, our Movement Monday classes, workshops, seminars, and so much more. We can also continue the dialogue online via social media. Our Instagram handle is survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word, and you can follow us on Twitter at SBC underscore ORG. Until next time, keep on thriving.